Now is the time for the leader to qualify. My name is Lucy B. I am a compulsive overeater, and I am your leader for this meeting. Um, Atusa, thank you so much for being in my life, and uh, thank you for asking me. Um, it is a godsend that I'm here today, and if I cry, that's what's going to happen. My mother died about 10 weeks ago, and um, I've been pretty acutely depressed the past couple days. Um, my husband also lost his job of 32 years, um, and he's home all the time, which is equally depressing. <laughs> So there's a lot of change in my life right now, so I feel incredibly grateful to be here because usually in the mornings these days, at least the past three days, and we all know this too shall pass, and things come and things go, and at 10 a.m. I'm ecstatically happy, at 11 I think I need to kill myself, at noon I'm okay, and at 1 I'm something else. So, um, But it's been a time of tremendous change. Uh, in addition, my career has exploded after 30 years, so... Th and that is difficult, too. You know, in the big book, it talks about um, being careful about excitement, fear, worry, anger. And, and I'm always so fascinated that excitement is the first one, because excitement is one of the few things that just makes me go straight to that food. You know, and, and just to talk about the kind of compulsive overeater I am, I'm driving here today and I'm speaking and I see a burger joint and I think I could stop and have French fries. You know, it's 30 in the morning. And... Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's the way my mind is, that's the way my mind is wired, on the way to qualify at a meeting. You know, that's the, what, what I do. So just to get the numbers away and talk about that just a little bit, um, I first was introduced to Overeaters Anonymous in the late 80s uh, by a life coach. I came to Hill Street meeting at 7.30 in the morning. It made me want to eat pizza, and so I decided I would leave um, and never come back. Uh, that, it took me 20 years to come back. I came back in 2006 at the suggestion of a therapist I was seeing who was uh, kind of a specialist in eating disorders. Um, and she was a longtime outstanding member of Overeaters Anonymous for about 30 years. I will say to her credit, she never pushed me into it. She never, she just kept giving me meeting guides. Go to OA, go to go, go to OA, go to OA. Um, I became abstinent after two years of relapse in 2008. January 28th, I've been abstinent eight and a half years. Um, at this height, 5'7", I've been as low as 125, as high as 165, and then I kind of stopped weighing myself. Kind of in the middle right now, uh, I'm down one size, so my, my recovery, I'm about a size 10. Sometimes I'm a little less, sometimes a little more. Um, I talked about when my abstinence is, my abstinence date, January 28th, 2008. So I've been abstaining for eight and a half years, and if I didn't mention it already, my abstinence is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and an optional snack. Um, I grew up in what would probably be considered a perfect... Oh, I have a timer. I need to tell you the time. Yeah? Um, I'm going to give you a five minutes. Perfect. What would be considered an absolutely perfect, thank you, Casey, environment. My parents were great looking. They were extraordinarily well-educated. They were both very smart. They were... It's like the cover of People magazine, and we had a beautiful home, and everybody looked perfect, and everything was great. The thing about it was there was a lot of ism around the general family. Um, my mother, bless her heart, may she rest in peace, is probably one of us. A lot of compulsive food behaviors. She's definitely an alcoholic. My grandmother on my mother's side also... Um, Let's say she hid food in her bra, she stole food from her grandchildren, so I think she probably could find a seat here as well. Um, and as a matter of fact, one time I took a trip from her and we kept missing all this food. 
And my cousin and I were like, where does this food go? Because, of course, we were in Scotland, so we had to eat shortbread, you know, when in Rome, right? And so one day we were all starving, and we were, like, taking a plane, and my grandmother's like, oh, here! And she took out, like, these packages of cookies. She'd just been taking it from us. So I can't come. So there's a lot of ism in the family, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of that, but everybody sort of looked perfect. And then when I was six, uh, my father decided to do uh, philanthropic work overseas. And so I moved to Southeast Asia, uh, I was the only kid of non-color in my grade. Uh, I was extraordinarily lonely. Uh, there was nobody near me to play with. Um, my brother was going to an American school because we were doing philanthropic work. Um, it was considered sort of politically correct for me to, um, let's say, I went to an orphanage school, a very strict uh, religious school. Um, I was singled out. Uh, I was told I couldn't go in the sun because I would get freckles. Um, I was so obviously different. I didn't, you know, <laughs> I was the only one who spoke English as a first language. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a question of whether I may be different. I was just different. And what I was was profoundly lonely. So what I did, which was extremely smart and resourceful and intelligent and probably saved my life at the time, is I learned how to cook. So I would bake for my dad. I would make him sugar cookies. I had this little Betty Crocker cookbook that was primarily cookies. And I would make all the cookies out of the book. And I would read. So I lived in a life of complete food and fantasy. And I would just read and read and read. And, and I read primarily um, fantasy. I was not reading nonfiction. I was reading about fairies and elves and leprechauns. And so that is what I learned to do to cope with the feeling of being different. Uh, the loneliness, the isolation. There was one point where nobody spoke to me at school for about six months, which I didn't tell my parents because I knew they couldn't do anything about it. And then I went back to the United States, and of course by that time I was um, really a, more comfortable in Asia than I was in the United States. I, had, I hadn't had a television, so I didn't know the shows, I didn't know how to dress, I had been speaking uh, Malay and Pidgin English. You know, I had an English accent when I needed to because it was a British Commonwealth country. So I came back to the United States and I, you know, I was no longer American. I had not seen large houses, large cars, had not had pasteurized milk until we hit a first world country. Um, and there was a lot of things that went on too with my parents who were extraordinary people, um, but they sort of felt that we should raise themselves, or I should raise myself because I'd been given so many advantages. So I would have to take myself to the doctor. I would be severely ill, rheumatic fever. And I would I literally have to say to my mother, I refuse to go to school unless you take me to the doctor. I, because I was severely ill and I knew it. They would leave me alone in hotel rooms with dysentery in third world countries. They would go off and do what they wanted to do. So I learned very early on, nobody was coming. I had to take care of myself. And that is something I have had to work extraordinarily hard on in this program to reach out and ask for help. And one of the magnificent things about my mother dying is I cannot do it alone. And I, you know, when my mother was in hospice and while she, while she was dying, I was texting every morning and people were calling. And even now I get phone calls this morning thinking of you, how are you doing? And so I've learned to reach out, you know, because that, that um, defective character of self-will, which saved my life very early on, is the thing that's going to kill me today. That's the thing that's really going to kill me. So I came back to the United States, and I would develop all these strange behaviors around food. Um, after school, there was this little, like, sort of corner 
grocery store place. And I would go there and I would, I would have my money. I had like a dollar, you know, because that was back in the day. And I would sort of, and I would arrange my food and all this, the candy and all this little sort of order of, you know, the sour candy. And then I'd have the little sweet candy and I would do all that. And then I had this next door neighbor who was not only a really lovely girl, but a fabulous next door neighbor because her dad was from Germany and he ran, uh, ran the um, Viennese German bakery. So that was amazing. And so I would sort of go, are we going to the bakery? She not today. And I'd be next day, are we going to the bakery? You know, and I was like constantly trying to manipulate her. And they, uh, at the bakery, they would give us this, um, you know, like the leftovers, right? And so we, it, this was just, oh, this is unbelievable. This was amazing. So, um, and I was introduced to amazing things. I never knew that cheese went with Danish. We had cheese Danish. That was, wow. That was incredible. So, um, and also at that time, I was a very serious um, ballet dancer. I was taking ballet a lot. I was tracked to go into the company. And by the age of 13, they were saying things like, okay, you're one of the best dancers in the class, but we cannot put you in, you know, a huge production of the Nutcracker at the Opera House. We can't put you in it because uh, you won't fit in the costumes. So all of my friends that I was on the same level with were stars, and I was left behind because at the age of 13, I was what they called too fat. So I went on a diet, I lost 25 pounds, and I remember I watched myself coming down a hallway and I was so um, bereft because I still had hips. You know, and here I was, I was um, this height, probably 125, but you know, my girlfriends were, when they looked like ballerinas, they were 110, they were 115, and I thought, I still look big. I, you know, I have hips, I'm still big. And I, in that moment, I was so shocked. And I just sort of, I think in a way, looking back, I just sort of gave up. And I thought, nothing will ever be enough. It'll, no matter how much weight I lose, it's not going to be enough. So, you know, even at that early age, and I know this is true of a lot of our stories, I was focused on how I was failing because I wasn't thin. And so then I, then, of course, you introduced boys, and then I knew that if you weren't thin, you couldn't get a boy. So I was, in, you know, doing all these elaborate things, you know, wearing bathrobes to conceal my butt, and I mean, just like, you know, crazy stuff, like long shirts, and I would wear like a bathing suit on top, but a long skirt on the bottom so they couldn't see my rear end. And I mean, I don't know who's looking. I don't know who these people who are looking at my rear end are, but... <laughs> Anyway, so it was all that sort of shame and, and, um, and this constant feeling of I was trying to compensate for something. And I, I didn't know what that was. I just felt like there was something really terribly, terribly wrong with me. And that's still something that I, I would say, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say that I battle with, because due to the grace of this program, I know how to cope with it. I wake up in the morning, I feel terrible. Okay, go to a meeting, call a fellow. Do your morning reading. Do your gratitude list. And then, you know, it's like taking medicine. Then that feeling's gone. But that feeling of depression and, like, what's wrong with me and why should I get out of bed, that has stayed with me for many, many years. And if it wasn't for the structure of this program, which teaches me to be consistent, which I've never had before. I never had consistency till I came in here. Um, there are times, like yesterday, I kept getting in and out of bed. You know, I was because I was incredibly sad, but the program gives me the tools to go, OK, 
I'm calling my sponsee at 10 o'clock and I'm talking to the sponsee, I'm not worried about myself. If I'm putting out the chairs and like handing out the literature, I'm talking to somebody about their daughter, or I'm talking to somebody about their kid getting married, and I actually have the ability to be interested. Before I was sort of talking to you, but I was really just waiting for you to tell me I look thin and look beautiful so that, you know, then we could get to the real topic, which was me, you know, and, and I didn't have to, you know, worry about you guys. And now I know that by doing service is how I get self-esteem and love. And my sponsor used to say that. She said, you know, self-esteem comes from action. And I was like, F you, forget the action. I want to think self-esteem. I don't want to act self-esteem. Anyway, so, um, so I learned pretty early on that, that there was something apparently wrong with me. And then I started to, when I was 17, I went on this radical diet. That was the only time I've ever been a restrictor. And I, my restricting was this. I was in love with a guy who had a girlfriend, but never mind about that. I was in love with a guy. I smoked a lot of cigarettes. I drank Perrier because it's supposed to be really good for you. And then I ate a lot of cottage cheese, I think, and spit it out into the wastebasket. So I lost 20 pounds. I was also working at Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and I decided very early on that I couldn't eat any of the food at Kentucky Fried Chicken. So, and my job was to make the strawberry pies. So I constantly looked like I'd been in surgery because I had red jello all the way up to my armpits. So I lost all the weight, you know, and then of course had to gain that all back when I went back to college and go on another search for another guy. And you know, and then I did, I don't know, like a grapefruit diet where you eat grapefruit and it's supposed to like the acid is supposed to eat up the food. I don't know what that was. And then, then there was one where I was supposed to eat fruit all the time. And then on another day you eat another thing. You can't eat fruit all day long. You feel sick. It's disgusting. And then I did some commercial diet programs a couple of times and, um, Oh, I went to a hypnotherapist. I went to a Turkish healer who gave me a sugar cube and said to say three Hail Marys. Not quite sure what that was about. Uh, oh, I went to an extraordinarily expensive trainer, and it was completely humiliating. He took pictures of me like half naked where I was supposed to put my arms out so you could see my fat dangle, and then later I was going to be thinner. And then, then I went to a dermatologist who took pictures of my cellulite and told me if I paid $20,000, she would get the cellulite removed, like this supermodel. I mean, it was just, you can just see, it was just a, it was just a mess. It was just a total mess. So um, what happened then is from a friend of mine who's also in this program, I heard about this, this um, therapist who specialized in food issues. In the meantime, I had been to maybe 14 different therapists. And, you know, the big book is very clear that we seek outside help but they have huge regards for psychologists. Uh, and the therapist did me a lot of good. They did not help with the food. Okay, uh, that's just my experience. Somebody else's experience might be completely different. Didn't help with the food. So I go to this therapist and she immediately says, you know, you're one of us, you need to go to OA. And I sort of thought I would go to OA when it's convenient. And anybody who's in here knows it's never convenient to go to OA. <laughs> it, it, it just isn't. It, it just isn't. And I sort of felt like OA, like it was a jack-in-the-box drive through that if I drove by an OA meeting and it was in session, then I would be happy to join. But otherwise, if it wasn't very convenient, I was really important and I was really busy. And doesn't everybody know I have a job? Because I thought that if you came here, obviously, you couldn't have a job because otherwise, what would you be doing here? I mean, really, it was crazy. It was just crazy. So I started coming to OA, 
And if it was a one o'clock meeting, I would arrive at 1.15 and leave at 1.45. Uh, there were times I showed up drunk, I think, remember, after like going out and, you know, drinking with lunch or dinner or something. I don't remember what that was. Um, let's see, what else did I do? Well, basically nothing. That's what I did. Uh, I didn't get a sponsor and I didn't work the steps because I thought that I didn't need to and I'd already been in another program and I figured I'd work the steps till step seven, so that was fine enough. So, um, and then what happened is I went to Paris, which is like my favorite city, and I went to see my two best friends there. And of course, I didn't plan to go see the museums of the Eiffel Tower. I told them what I wanted to eat. Gave them a whole menu. This is what I want to eat. And, um, and of course, it wasn't enough. So that night, I started binging after the meal. But I'd had enough program in me to wake up in the morning and to feel really, um, I was starting to bottom out. I was starting to bottom out and uh, and I couldn't feel okay and I started writing about it and I had this I got on my knees I remember in the hotel room and I had this one second where I felt like or a millisecond what would it feel like to turn over my will my life to the care of God as I understand him her or whatever you think of God and in that moment I had uh, like a this brief moment of reprieve like where I just felt this burden come off so it was a two-week holiday that I ruined because I was restless irritable and discontented because I was chronically demoralized Um, I came back and I took one look at my dog and my dog had all these like red blotches and I was like this dog is seriously ill we ran her to the emergency room Uh, they said it's you know really serious illness and I called up my sponsor and I said oh you know I'm back I'm sorry I haven't called and you know my dog's dying and she said well you know you haven't called me for X amount of time I've moved on and she fired me so the combination of the dog dying me being in and out of the emergency room um, the vacation bottoming out and my sponsor firing me brought me into these rooms and I called somebody in AA who knew somebody in OA that person is one of those miracle things they got back to me in 15 minutes that person happened to be home when she's never home she answered the phone she was in a really bad mood she answered the phone and I was like I was told you know so-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so to call you and she said uh, what meetings do you go to well I I didn't really you know I, I sort of went to whatever meeting was near I didn't know what to say I said well I go to Saturday night light a candle because it's down the street for me and um, she said okay uh, where do you sit I thought well I sit in the back because I come in late what do you mean where do I sit she said okay meet me there I'm the girl with the um, blonde bob and I was like oh my god it's the scary girl oh my god it's the scary girl that I've seen she's the one that goes to all the meetings she's so frightening but at that point I was I was really at that point I think I was in a bathrobe with my head down five minutes so that's been my sponsor ever since Um, and I got abstinent the day before my dog died and so I was able to be present with her as she died. Uh, at this point, I go to five meetings a week, I, um, sometimes four. Uh, I've also picked up another program, a relationship program. Um, I have the ability to be consistent. Um, I left my mother as a loving daughter. My mother and I had a very complicated relationship. I was with her every night, every day at the hospital. I told her I loved her. I held her hand. I'm able to do that. Um, I sponsor a lot of people which saves my life I always like to say about sponsorship it helps me a lot hopefully it doesn't hurt them too much Um, I you know I try to do a lot of service because that that's if I have to show I'm one of those people if I don't have something to do I may or may not decide not to come because 
you know, so I like to have commitments. You know, when my sponsor said to me, take five commitments, I didn't even know what she meant. I just said yes. She said, call me at 6.30 in the morning. At that point in my life, I was getting up at 9. I said yes. Um, you know, I can just show up for myself. Um, before I came in here, I didn't make my bed. I now make my bed every morning. I say my prayers. I do my morning meditation. Um, my career is better uh, than it's ever been before. As long as I put my program first. As long as I put my program first, everything else goes into line. The only way I got through um, my mother dying was by my connection with a higher power. That is the only way. And the, the great thing, if there is a great thing about having something like that happen, is it strips away everything. It strips away, will drinking help me? Will food help me? Will shopping help me? Will travel help me? Will reading this book? And there's nothing in my experience to rely on but my relationship with a higher power. And, um, you know, some, one of my sponsees doesn't, is an atheist. And I always say the way you feel about your dogs and your animals, that kind of unconditional love and acceptance, that's, that's all you need in your life. So that's what I've come to rely on. So even when I don't believe the praying works, even when I don't believe the meditation works, and I just read a really old timer in AA, and he talks about there's times where you don't have that conduit. You don't have that connection to a higher power. You just, you just don't have it. And he says, what do you do then? You go work with other people. And that's, that's been my experience, you know, that there's times I got out of bed and thought this is pointless and, you know, I got to talk to somebody about the ninth step. I've had a lot of occasion to use the ninth step recently. I had to make an amends yesterday. I had to make another amends about two months ago. It was one of those 10% amends that really didn't go well, where the person was uh, happy to tell me what they thought of me. And um, that's okay. Because I did what I needed to do. Would I have done it on my own? No. But my sponsor said, you call this person and you call them now and you call me back. So that was kind of, I think the only thing I've done right in this program, like literally the only thing, is I have done what my sponsor told me to do. That's about it. But that's because I was so completely devastated. Um, it's been a really challenging time with my husband. You know, he's getting used to me being around all the time. I'm getting used to him being around all the time. Like I like to say, he used to manage 1,500 people. Now he has two dogs, a cat, and me. Fortunately, occasionally the gardener arrives, so I can <laughs> have him talk to gardener. But it's an amazing opportunity, and I really feel like my higher power makes no mistakes. There's got to be a reason why this stuff is going on to increase our intimacy, to increase my connection with my higher power. Um, uh, let's see what else can I tell you there are a lot of things I've, I've had to give up in this program um, God has seen fit to strike me with really bad allergies late in my life so I've had to give up all gluten I didn't want to do this but I ended up in the hospital I've had to give up all dairy I was a four espresso a day girl and that was before 9am I've had to give up all caffeine um, these are, and if you're listening to this podcast and I just lost you don't worry I, 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 <laughs> You know, I'm not down for the chamomile tea, let me tell you. I, 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 no. Um, anyway, so those are things that would have been inconceivable for me. Um, if you're struggling, I was in relapse for two years. Um, I couldn't make it. Um, I, I think the only thing you can do wrong in this program is to leave. That's, and even if you leave, just come, just come back. And then, you know, it'll work out. Um, my life is... You know, I didn't come in here looking for friends. I thought I was very popular. I didn't come in here looking for friends. I have friends here that I rely on more than I rely on in virtually anybody else in my life, including my family. 
Um, and without them, I would not have got through, gotten through the past 10 weeks. It's just not possible. Um, and so I, I, will, I will leave you now with what I used to hate, which is, you know, thank you, which is don't leave till the miracle happens. Um, but there are miracles here, and, and many of you I'm, I'm looking at right now have, have helped me through my miracles. So thanks for being here. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own, that is for sure, and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Um, Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Abby? Um, the question is, with my complicated relationship with my mother, what kind of work did I do to show up for at the end? The answer is I did a lot of work. Um, in the wisdom of my higher power, my mother was starting to get dementia, so I was starting to lose her about two years prior. Um, so I did use outside help. I did go to the relationship program, and I had this um, very deep um, feeling that no matter what happened, I didn't want to have any regrets. So I was willing to go to any length to um, resolve things with her. Now, did she say stuff that irritated me? Oh, yeah. All the time. I would, I would, you know, fly up to see her and she'd look at me and she said, are you wearing any underwear? I'd be like, really? I just took a plane and drove two hours? I mean, it was, it was not a smooth road, right? Um, but I just kept, I just kept thinking, when and if she goes, I cannot have any regrets. So I just kept asking for help from my higher power, from help from my sponsor. Um, and then what happened at the end, which made it very much easier for me, honestly, is she became, uh, forgive me, much sweeter. And so she would tell me she loved me, she would kiss me, she would hold my hand. So that gave me, thanks to my higher power arranging it this way, that gave me a, the ability to go into her more and to hold her hand and to tell her I loved her and to kiss her so that by the time she actually died, I was able to be with her at her bedside and say all the stuff that we're taught to say. I mean, it's, it's, it's that thing about the traditions. There are people in here that say stuff and I'm like, oh, you're crazy. But, you know, we're taught, we listen to newcomers, we extend our hand, it, it's that. And, and, you know, I used a lot of outside help. I did a ton of writing, I did a ton of writing, did a bunch of four steps on it. And, um, and you know, I, what I, one of the things I did is I said, it, it, at this point, it's not about my needs. I'm going to put all my needs to be recognized aside, all my needs to be acknowledged aside, and I'm going to make it just about my mother and just about my father. And, just, and this is what we've taught in here, right? It's 100% service. So I just went into that service mode, and I, and I thought, I'm just going to be of service, and I'm going to get all my needs met on the outside, whether it's from people in OA primarily, really, or my husband or whoever it was. Thanks, Casey. Thank you. Uh, there are very few people I can ask this of. Could you tell us how your relationships with the non-human members of your family have changed, your relationships with your animals? Um, yeah, I can tell you about that. The question is, how do my relationships with the four-legged members of my family have changed? Um, I'm a big dog person. It's how I got through my childhood a lot by having dogs. It's how I get through it now. I think 
now I have a much better appreciation of what they bring into my life, the kind of unconditional love and support, and I have a much bigger appreciation of how much I need them, particularly now when I am in a state of, of grief. And there's something about the unconditional acceptance of an animal that is so I try to tell them constantly how much I appreciate them and what a great job they're all doing you know I mean my sponsor always says this treat your husband like your dog you know you know when they come home go yes happy to see you you know do whatever you have to do and and you know if I treated my husband like my dogs and kept telling him how worthwhile he is and how you know I I think it it would go better Um, but I I think it's that I'm more present Casey and so I'm more present to how much they bring into my life and how you know I can't tolerate a lot of noise right now a lot of um, activity so I'm just so appreciative to to have the dogs with me and have my garden and so I I try to use that to ground me in addition to the to the program The question is, how did I deal with chronic demoralization? And I still do. Um, it's basically the, the ghost that gets up in bed with me every morning. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The thing is, is now I have a different relationship with it thanks to the grace of this program. Does it still feel real to me? Yes, it does. But now I have commitments at meetings, so I get up. I get out of bed, I hit my knees, I start praying, I do my writing. By that time, I'm starting to feel a little bit better, starting to feel a little bit better. I greet the dogs, like Casey's just question. I'm reminded how much the dogs love me. I go outside, I look at the birds, I look at the garden, I see what my higher power has created, and then I start taking sponsee calls, but it's really the tools of the... It's just, it's the boring answer of consistent use of the tools of the program because to me the tools of the program are like erosion you know it's like when you go to an old monastery or something and and you think wow like this used to be a stone but now it's down like this because it's taken hundreds of years of people walking and I never know it's like that stone cutter thing stone cutter can hit the rock 99 times the hundredth time it breaks which one of those strokes did it I don't know so it's, it's sort of like flossing your teeth it's the boring consistency of you just do it and you do it and it's faith you don't know if it's going to work you just keep doing it because there's kind of no other choice but to go backwards into for me for me I'm talking about me into self-hatred chronic demoralization and I don't want to go there because then I hate you and I hate me and it's like when I see somebody walking around and I think they shouldn't be wearing that I think you better check yourself out here You know, you better check yourself out because if you're worried about her butt, you've got a problem with yours. You know, seriously, if I'm worried about somebody else, the problem's over here. It's not over there. Um, Hi, thank you so much. Yeah. You shared about being left alone. Yeah. How do you work Okay, the question is, I shared about being left alone and the feeling that no one's coming and how did I work my program around that. Um, I still have that feeling. I still wake up in the morning thinking I don't feel loved when I wake up in the morning. And again, it's, again the answer is I just keep reaching out. I send texts. Um, I send texts. I make calls. And again, I try to be of service. Instead of thinking nobody's coming, 
I go to them. I, I try to be of service first and worry about who's going to walk into my life second. And the other thing I try to do is to, I remember the morning after my mom died, um, I went into my uh, bathroom and there were four bright green wild parrots feeding on my bird feeder. And I thought, if that isn't a sign from God of an extraordinary sight, I don't know what is. So I try to use these little signs I have. You know, like this morning, a, a really amazing fellow whose mother had also passed away called me. So I, tr- I have the feeling in my body that nobody's coming, but I use the medicine and the steps of the program to to let me know that's not true. Primarily, I think the 11th step, seeking that conscious contact, and also the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening. Because what I love about the 12th step is it doesn't say you've had a spiritual transformation, right? Or, you know, it just says you have to be a little more awake than you were before. And so that's what I try to remember. And sometimes what I do with my gratitude list is I make a list of 10 things I've done well that day. And I always start the list thinking, I haven't done anything. And by the number 10, I think like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. So that's what, what I do to counteract that, that feeling of, of nobody's coming. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your beautiful share. Um, I was wondering, since you talked about being in your childhood, being singled out, being different, it's very un- it's, un- it's unusual to hear. Um, so how has that changed your life now that you're back and you're part of the regular society and has your program helped you to be more compassionate to uh, the experiences of racism in this country? Yeah. So the question is, I was singled out as a child and um, how has that affected me and how have I used my program to cope with that, um, that racism that I, that I experienced? Um, when I came in here to the program, thank you for the question, um, I wanted to be special. What I've learned in the program is I'm just one among many. That has given me extreme comfort. I don't need to be special. I don't need to be perfect. I don't need to be smarter. I don't need to know the answer. I don't need to look better than you. I don't need to have better shoes than you. I don't need to be thinner than you. I don't need to do all this stuff. I can just be one among many. And I'll come in and they'll go, you know, how are you, Lucy? And I'll go, oh, my God, I ate a five-course dinner and, like, drank I don't know what last night. And people will say, of course what you did. Thank you for being honest. We love you. And that makes me feel just, I'm just, I'm just with others like me. And that gives me so much compassion. And I think also, in a, in a weird way, because I did grow up in a foreign country and I did experience this, it gave me uh, more compassion for, for other cultures. But what this program has given me is more compassion for myself and therefore more compassion for other people. Because I'll sit in a meeting and I'll think, so-and-so's giving me the same stupid share about their sister. So-and-so's, you know, so-and-so's crying about their husband who died seven years ago. Why do I care? You know, and, and then I'll think, hold on a second. Hold on a second. You know, why am I going here? And I literally try to... Now, sometimes I'm just pissed off and that's that. But I just try to open my heart and say, what is this person feeling? What is this, what is this person feeling? And, and how does this intersect with my life? And by the way, why am I judging them? But, you know, let, let's, let's talk about that. Because I think I need to be tough. Because I had to be tough as a kid. Because I couldn't cry as a kid. But why am I judging them? So, thanks. How do I define it? 
define relapse for myself, I was binging. Basically, um, you know, my abstinence is three meals a day and a snack. And um, I went to a wedding and uh, they put bowls of pasta in front of me at a table and you served yourself. And I just kept serving myself. And then I went back to the little bed and breakfast nearby and they put chocolate chip cookies and I ate mine and then I ate my husband's and then... I mean, that's really what it was, is I just kept breaking my abstinence. Um, and yeah, I was binging, I was grazing, um, you know, and it would, it, would, it would happen around a couple things. It would happen around, again, the big book, extreme excitement. Oh, I've done so well at this interview and I'm going to get a new job. I need a cupcake. It would happen around excitement and... You know, or I would go to the Hollywood Bowl and I would start eating. And Atusa pointed this out to me. She said, you don't even know what act you're seeing. You don't know who's singing. I didn't. I, I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you who I went to see. All I can tell you is what I ate and if I tried to eat the people's food next door to me. <laughs> you know, so it was pretty clear that I was relapsing. I actually know who I go to see at the bowl now. <laughs> that might sound a little crazy, but I actually know who I saw. Um, so uh, that's how I defined relapse is all that binging and grazing. And I was a big grazer, and I thought grazing was ladylike. I was going to Starbucks four times a day grazing. So it was pretty clear when I got honest. How did you, thank you for your share. Yeah. How did you settle on your abstinence? How did you decide how, what your abstinence was? Uh, the question is, how did I settle on my abstinence and how did I define it? My sponsor did it. I, I said, well, I'm having two of these, but I have half of these, and then I have a quarter of a cup of... She went, whoa, 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 too complicated. Abstinence needs to be simple, which I truly believe. I don't think abstinence should be difficult. I think it should be, you wear it like a loose garment, which is another phrase. I was like, what the hell does that mean? But, I mean, I, I mean, it just should be easy, you know. So she defined it for me. She said, what about three meals a day and one optional snack? And I said, that sounds great. And I don't judge myself if I take the snack or I don't take the snack. To me, it's like I have a pretty long day today, so I had a snack this morning because I went to breakfast with a friend. I kind of do it as I need it. For a while, and it's, it continued into this year, I was waiting till midnight and taking my snack at 12.05 so I could eat chips. Okay? Fortunately, that behavior has, has left me God willing for this moment. Ellie. Thank you. Um, in addition to the allergic foods you now mm-hmm. have, the gluten and the dairy, do you have alcohol food that you need to stay with? Any fried potato. <laughs> Any fried potato. I, I really, uh, if you put a potato salt and uh, fat together, I, I'm a crazy person. So uh, there's that. Um, uh, that's the main one that I can think of right now because I don't tend to do a lot of gluten-free desserts. Uh, they're not that readily available. I don't tend to do a lot of dairy-free ice. I just don't tend um, to do that. Oh, butter. butter. Believe it or not, I can get away with dairy with butter, and uh, I do. So uh, butter, is, butter is a big one. I, had to, I was in Ireland where they have great butter. Don't go there. So... Uh, <laughs> And they were putting like three tubs of butter on it. And I had to text my sponsor from Ireland, no butter today. And she said, that should be easy. I'm thinking, you're not here. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much.
work the steps in this program now, and how have the steps worked you with your butt issues? My butt issues. Uh, how do I work the steps in the program, and how do the, my steps work me with my butt issues? My butt issues are none of my business. And if I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of this program, it's not focused on my rear end. Um, so, and I figure it's God's job to decide what body I'm in. It is not my job. God is my employer. Now, do I forget this? I'm now no longer focused on my butt. I'm now onto my stomach. But, you know, and I, I'm a dancer. I went back to dancing thanks to the grace of this program. And I look in the mirror and I make a conscious decision. Today, you are going to tell yourself you look beautiful and you're not going to focus on what's negative. And if I know I'm in a negative space, I try not to look in the mirror. I try to pick out something that's, that's great about that. Um, and your question also is about working the steps? Yeah. In this program, um, I work steps six and seven a lot right now because there's a lot of defects of character. You know, when I'm having to make amends to people, that's defects of character. So, and I, I use what I told you guys about, you know, I have self-will. It's how I survived. I have food. It's how I survived. It's fantasies. I, I don't have strict boundaries. It's how I survived and got along with my parents. So I try to work on that. Um, I've been doing a tenth step quite a bit. What are my fears? What are my resentments? What are my assets? Because I've had a lot of fears and resentments recently. So I've been working those a lot too. Okay, thanks so much. <laughs>